Welcome to this moment in democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. On today's episode, we speak to former Congressman Denver Riggleman about his role on the January 6th committee and his new book titled The Breach, the untold story of the investigation into January 6th. Today's podcast was recorded on Monday, November 7th, 2022. Denver Riggleman served eight months as a senior technical advisor for the Congressional Select Committee investigation of the January 6th, 2021 attack on the United States Capitol. In a new book titled The Breach, Riggleman delves into a few key parts of the committee's investigation, including an examination of a trove of text messages sent and received by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the lead up to the Capitol riot. The book also revealed for the first time that during the Capitol breach, someone at the Trump White House made a call to a rioter who had entered the building. We are here today with Congressman Riggleman, who's been kind enough to join us. Congressman Riggleman, welcome. Thank you, Professor Ambar. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I I spent much of the past few days reading The Breach. It is a wonderful and I think it's fair to say disturbing book in many ways, uh, but one I think is very necessary for anyone who's concerned about American democracy and American politics. Would you share for our audience what your role was with the January 6th committee and how you wound up on it? Sure. Yeah. My role was a senior technical advisor. And, you know, what's interesting is I sort of picked the name, too. I don't know if anybody knows that because they really didn't know what to name me. But they needed somebody who had experience with data, but really uh, on the counterterrorism spectrum, which was how to use data uh, from multiple formats and multiple streams in order to identify people who might be important to go after, to look at, right, or to cross-reference when you're doing questioning and things like that. And so that's really what they asked me for or what they needed me for. And, and you know, my past also, Professor Ambar, was building fusion centers. Uh, my background was Department of Defense and the intelligence community. I was CEO of a company that did this, uh, also counter IED, where I had to, you know, bring in multiple streams of information. So really, it was my 20 years of counterterrorism and data analytics experience working with the Air Force, the National Security Agency, and the Office of Secretary of Defense. And, you know, the simple fact was I was a congressman. So I also had a little bit of the political experience needed to fuse my background in data and counterterrorism analysis with my time as a congressman. And I think having both both sides of that, uh, both sides of, of those experiences was really what drew them and asked me to come onto the committee. Well, it's a, it's a remarkable background that you have. And, and I, I will also commend to readers that you spend a great deal of time talking about your personal background, which I thought was refreshing and also insightful, and perhaps we'll come back to that. But I want to start maybe with a quote, given your intelligence background and your familiarity with, with defense and, and, and so on. This was a, a very powerful moment in the book, for me anyway. Uh, on page 226, you write, I lose a lot of sleep thinking about how many members of the armed forces and how many veterans uh, are joining the ranks of the authoritarian far right. Uh, how did this happen? And could you just share a little bit about what your book has to say about that and what might be done to counteract uh, that trend that you uh, so ominously describe? Yeah, sure. And, you know, it's it's interesting because I had the, I don't know if it's the, you know, it's not joy at all, but I had the privilege of looking at, I would say, millions of lines of data because we call detail records, text messages, but also the Department of Justice charged defendants documentation. And what really got to me is how many former military and law enforcement individuals were involved. And if you look at the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys and other right wing extremist groups, there seems to be a preponderance of former military members or former law enforcement that are involved. 
Also, when you looked at what happened that day, there seemed to be a lot of mission planning components. Uh, and the militant part of this or the military part of this was hand in hand with the legal and political strategies that we saw also. So that's that's really what got to me, I think, Professor Ambar, is that, you know, I'm, I'm former military. Um, you know, I served, uh, you know, 11 years, if you count inactive reserve time when I went to the University of Virginia in ROTC. Uh, then I went straight into NSA special projects, and I also worked at the Pentagon. So I think all these things together um, gave me, I think, unique and invaluable insight into these individuals and how mission planning worked that day, but also how you see people talk in these military terms and that terminology. And uh, I'm still losing sleep over it. And I think it's actually worse than it was before January 6th. Well, that's that's quite a lot to digest for, for, for everyone. Um, why don't you just take take us a step back um, as you were um, seeing this evidence mount um, on the committee and, and, and in the aftermath, uh, to what degree did that um, give you uh, incentive, but also maybe pause in writing this book? Why don't you share a little bit about how uh, the book came about vis-a-vis -vis this um, very uh, important role you did play on the committee? Yeah, the book came about because, you know, for me, speed is of the essence, and I really thought the data belonged to the American people. But there's a flip side to that, is that the actual untold story is the data. Um, I had an individual tell me, he goes, it's like the data is the Jason Bourne, you know, of future investigations. And uh, that's something that we saw here is that once we saw the call detail records and the Meadows text messages and other text messages, I mean, we, we also have Ali Alexander's text messages you know, once you see all of these text messages and how they and how they integrated not only with the call detail records, but social media posts, uh, people that are on the Donald.win or Gab or Parler or Twitter or Instagram or any of these other sort of trip code protected chans, whether you're looking at 8chan, 4chan, 8coon, you're looking at all these different social media platforms, but it was really how their interactions, what they were saying, you know, on these platforms, what we saw in call detail records, and what we saw in text messages, all of it aligned. And that's the power of data. And, uh, you know, this, this committee has been going on for a long time. Um, this book was scheduled. I wrote it after I left the committee. We were able to write this book in 12 weeks. So I really thought by this time the final report would have been out, but I wanted to show the power of data. Um, and I think we were able to do that. So I wrote it because I, I really thought we needed something out there about the data itself before the midterms. Because as you know, you know, political violence is inherently political. And uh, I thought it was important for the American people to know what data supported the committee's direction and that the committee was going in the right direction. Uh, you mentioned in, in the book that some 800 people have faced charges related to the January 6th attempted coup. Uh, and, and that's the language you use to describe it. And, and some, I think, maybe have, for whatever reason, have shied away from using that language. But but I think uh, the, sort of the evidence speaks for itself. Are, are you... Uh, encouraged by the number of charges, the Department of Justice's uh, approach to handling this in terms of the, the criminal side, uh, potentially, if I could ask you to put your, your legal hat on. Uh, goodness. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about how do you feel about where things stand in terms of uh, people paying the price um, legally for what, what took place on that day? Now, I, I have told people, I just want to let you know that uh, Congressman, you know, I'm also a whiskey distiller. So that congressman and distiller are just my cover terms. This is 20 years of, you know, analysis and operations. So I'll give you my, I, I think my opinion as an, as an intelligence guy, as an operations guy, but I think the DOJ has a very specific mission uh, and that's to, you know, identify those individuals and what they did as far as breaking the law when they attacked the Capitol. I wanted to present a larger problem. 
And, you know, I think the DOJ has done a very good job uh, with the number of people that they had to identify um, to bring to trial. I, I can't imagine uh, the, no, the, the number of pages and number of data lines they had to go through just for those 800 plus individuals. But there's something bigger here. Um, it's the radicalization pipeline is why they were there. Uh, but it's also the, the background, the, the coordination, the command and control is what obviously, you know, us military types call it. How many people were involved <clears throat> in pushing the radicalization pipeline, the legal theory, the political theory? So the people on the ground, um, very important to identify those. But I think the bigger problem is how our system uh, works, what, what that disease in, is in our system where that many people could be radicalized to do violence on that day. And when you look at polling now, Professor Ambar, when you look at what's going on anecdotally or the midterms tomorrow, as we're talking the day before the midterms, you know, why is it worse than it was before January 6th? Why do we still have almost 70% of the GOP electorate? Um, why do they still think the election was stolen? To me, and I will humbly submit this, to me, that's more important that happened on what happened on January 6th. And it's more important to know why that's continuing after January 6th and why today we have the same problems and the same type of violent speech going on about individuals that don't align with a specific, say, party line or party apparatus. Those are the things that bother me. And it's, and it's really just from my background of looking at command and control and coordinating infrastructure for, counter, for, for terrorism you know, across the globe. Well, indeed. And you mentioned that in your, in your book that there's lots of blame to go around, that people, uh, including Nancy Pelosi, could have done things differently. A number of people could have uh, uh, inside the White House. Uh, Mark Meadows, whose text you describe as uh, uh, the Rosetta Stone for, for the investigation, there's so much blame to go around. Where do you place blame uh, or responsibility? Maybe that's the better word for what took place that day. If you had to distill it, no pun intended, but where does the responsibility lie? You know, ultimately it's leadership. You know, I, something in the military's commander's intent, right? The commander comes out with a vision statement or a mission statement that she planned to. President Trump had that commander's intent. You know, when you talk about, I need to stay in office or we need to overturn the election or it was stolen, you know, a lot of that QAnon conspiracy theories, but he had the intent. But when you look at the people around him, what I like to look at is the second and third tier, the people around him. Now, you heard in the hearings, and I don't know how many people are familiar or watched them. You heard about Team Crazy and Team Normal, right? The people that were around him. Well, he, he, liked, to, he liked to listen to Team Crazy. Um, and I don't think Team Normal did enough to, to defuse Team Crazy. But I think what you see is that you had actors around him at the second and third tier, if I may use some intelligence terms, that were doing the command and control and the planning. If you look at the communication side, you had Dan Scamito running comms, you had legal you know, ridiculousness being pushed by Giuliani or Sidney Powell, or even theories pushed by Lynn Wood, some real nuts out there. And then you had people at the other tier, and I call them the four horsemen of the grifterverse, right? You have Roger Stone, you have, you know, Alex Jones, which, as you just saw, he's having some some legal problems, right? Uh, you have Mike Flynn and you have Steve Bannon. And you have these individuals that were able to grift. And actually, if you do a follow the money sort of investigation, made a lot of money of all pushing fantasies and gained a lot of power. So you see all these different groups that were working in, tan in tandem, almost a decentralized coordination based on President Trump's commander's intent. So if you go back to Trump, he really is the one who's ultimately responsible in a role of leadership. But when you look at all these other groups, I don't think we've really, even though we think we have, I don't think we've really 
delved far enough into how coordinated or how deep some of this command and control infrastructure went. And again, I wrote the book because of that. I wanted people to ask those questions about data, you know, and about how far we can go to find out not only how these individuals made money, but how they effectively use social media for their radicalization pipeline, how that leads to violence, right? And how that leads to future type of activities uh, like you're seeing today with Mike Flynn out there on the, uh, he's out there with the Reawaken America tour talking about Christian nationalism. You've seen a real bloom of activity uh, around what we just saw sort of, I would say in a small way before January 6th. I know now it looked big then, but I think again, the problem is much larger when you're talking about these themes of Christian nationalism uh, and also disinformation that's routing itself around the internet and around social media. Well, I have to say, you and I, I think we're, we're, I think I read your date of birth, which I won't share with the readers, but I think in, in your book, but I, we're, we're pretty much contemporaries. And I, I want to ask uh, if you could help us understand how did the Republican Party that you grew up with, I mean, we both were, remember Ronald Reagan's presidency. We remember a different kind of Republican Party, not that people didn't disagree uh, and even vehemently, but how did we get from there to here? Um, because you do take to task the Republican Party. You say it's a a party I once belonged to, yet it poses a serious danger to our democracy. How did, how did that happen in these past several decades? You know, I, I've, I think it's one of the, the questions I ask myself, and I think I have an answer, then it sort of eludes me. But, you know, when I came back from 9-11, I remember my first interactions with 9-11 truthers, right? That 9-11 was an inside job. And I thought, you know, these some crazy sons of guns, right? But there's no way that this can metastasize. I, can't, I mean, people can't actually believe this. But if you go from, you know, all the way back to the fake moon landing, you go to flat earthers, hollow earthers, uh, you go to birthers, right, with uh, President Obama, you go to truthers with 9-11. There seems to be lately, I would say, when you're talking about religion or you're talking about a direct link to the supernatural, there's a lot of people that seem to be susceptible to these type of conspiracies or this messianic, apostolic, good against evil war that they're in. And I've seen that increase. I mean, it seems exponentially since the Tea Party days. You know, you're talking 2008 to 2010. But what I saw after I officiated a same-sex wedding is that instead of there being, you know, in, like I don't really think there's much of a policy debate but instead of there being, hey, you know, Denver, we really didn't, we think it's okay, but, you know, we're really not, we think marriage is between a man and a woman. I was automatically called the tool of the Antichrist, uh, general of the sodomite armies. Uh, we were accused of, I, I was called a secret Jew in a pejorative way. Um, <laughs> obviously called a secret dem. My wife was accused of funneling money for the George Soros organization through our distilleries. We had we had people saying I was trying to change the sexual orientation of children. I was automatically called a groomer, as you can probably imagine. I mean, my God, I officiated a same-sex wedding. Now, think about everything I just said. It wasn't, hey, Denver, we think marriage is against, uh, between a man and a woman is a religious issue, but we don't think you're evil. I was automatically dehumanized and seen as evil as much as, you know, death threats, attempts, you know, you, as you read in the book, attempt on my vehicle, taken off. It was absolutely insane. So what I think is that we have almost this bloom of, of a massive amount of money being pushed behind this sort of Christian nationalism, sort of nativist way of thinking. And I never really understood how bad it was until I did something against it. So since I wasn't in politics up until 2017, 2018, you know, I'm 52. I, hey, I'll tell you, I was born St. Patrick's Day, 1970, man, right? March 17, 1970. I'm old, right? Uh, you know, you can count my tree rings. But I think that I think what we have right now is that 
Now it's just good against evil. Social media has provided a platform for digital radicalization that I've never seen before. And I think you have digital profits, profits with a PH and profits with an F. So if you can say that you have a direct, direct link to the supernatural, President Trump has a direct link to the supernatural, right? Then the, then the means all, always justify the ends. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that hatred or fear of the other is now the sort of the prevailing doctrine of a large swath of the GOP. And it's something that I reject out of hand. So that's about the best answer I have, Professor Ambar. I'm sorry, that's probably not perfect, but it's about the best I can do. Yeah, in trying to understand this. Not at all. It's it's perfectly uh, perfectly fine, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I wanted to ask you what the reaction has been uh, from your side to the book, and is it accomplishing what you've hoped it would accomplish thus far, or is that uh, are we a little premature in answering that question? Well, you know, I I always told people, and I, this was a long time ago, and I've heard this number now from others, but I think it might have come from me. I wondered if this book could help, you know, three to 5% of the independent center-right population to see that the stop the steal thing was hogwash and really based on like conspiratorial trolls uh, and started by Roger Stone in 2016, right? Let's just be honest, right? This was started by a grifter to begin with. So I was hoping that maybe if I wrote a book that wasn't the committee report for people who aren't ever gonna watch a committee hearing, make it short enough where there's a narrative, make it a little bit exciting, make data a little bit sexy, you know? I thought maybe that could do it. But the fact is when the book came out, there was this automatic defensive, you know, posture by certain people, but also the far right obviously hated me, uh, but they already did, but it got worse uh, with death threats immediately after 60 minutes when I was on there. But also the resistance Democrats sort of came out saying, you're trying to hurt people before anybody read the book, uh, trying to hurt the committee, you know? So there was some, uh, but that's what happens nowadays in the social media environment is that people overreact, they don't know what's going on. And there's a limited knowledge by not just people in the far right or, or people in the middle or people on the left or, or even the committee, there's a limited knowledge on how radicalization works. So this book is about radicalization. And near the end, if, if, when you read about Ray Epps and Jenny Thomas, right, in my epilogue, most that had nothing to do with the committee at all. That had to do with how they were radicalized um, or how false flags happen, like Tucker Carlson and his Patriot Purge documentary. So what I wanted people to see is that there's this whole ecosystem, this whole sort of manure, I'll use that word instead of the other word, this manure uh, that grows these conspiracy theories. And then it's actually pushed by data or pushed by technology into the mainstream. And I guess what, what I really want people to see, if there's a bottom line to this, is that ignorance can be spread by superior technologies. And if we don't understand that or get our arms around that, I think it continues unabated into the future. And I think, again, we're seeing that today. You, you mentioned some disagreement uh, with members of the committee who had a certain view about, uh, about the book. What's been the committee's reaction, either to you personally or maybe even off the record? What have, what have people shared or, uh, about their reaction with you or as far as you can tell? I think, you know, the surprise at the beginning is um, my knowledge is vast. I was doing this well before the committee started. And, I'll be, and obviously, I'm doing it after the committee is over. Um, this is what I do for a living. I have more experience in this probably than the, the entire congressional delegation combined. So when they came out with some of the things they said initially, I think they were worried about the subtitle, which was interesting, right? Uh, the untold story was the data. 
Um, and we knew that, you know, going in. And I thought people would wait to read the book before they said anything or commented. The issue is they got very quiet after people started reading the book because this book, as you've read, is not some behind the scenes chatty Cathy gossip book that everybody's writing about Trump now and all that. This is a book about data. It's a book about bureaucracy. It's a book about how it's very difficult for the government right now, when you're talking about Congress specifically and their authorities to conduct an investigation like this. It's the fact that government is always going to be behind the tactics, techniques, and procedures of the TTPs, right, of people who are willing to do bad things to this government. It's very hard to keep up. So I'm just trying to introduce a new paradigm. Uh, that we need to look at data more and we need to resource data analytics in a way we never have before. And it's really, it's not a critique of the committee because I thought they did great, as I said, but it is a critique of our government system. And the fact is the committee could never do what needed to be done in order to find out how the radicalization pipeline work and command and control work because they don't have the necessary tools or ability to do so. Um, so again, it's, um, it was me trying to do a, uh, a command debrief uh, for intelligence on data. And I think people got sideways because they didn't understand it. But now that the book's out there and people are reading it, I think there's there's been some calmness introduced into the system. Well, I think one of the um, most important things your book does is in addition to uh, this discussion of data, uh, and I have to say, as someone who's not very much uh, technically oriented, I'm sure my students are out there la laughing at that because they, they know damn well I'm not. Um, Nevertheless, you provide this inside look into your own life, this autobiographical story uh, that I think is really compelling and it helps uh, connect this uh, intelligence background, but also some of what you mentioned before, this, this religious background of yours that uh, I, I won't go into detail. I think it's worth reading for, for those who are considering buying the book if they haven't. Uh, sort of the religious fervor in which you, you grew up with this combination uh, of, of storylines is really truly compelling. I don't know if you want to share um, a little bit about that um, now, because I think, uh, you know, on one hand, people may think they're getting this sort of, uh, you know, insight into just text and a bunch of, you know, uh, computer data. But I think there's a real human story as well. I think um, the reason we call it the breach, um, you know, is I was able to step into it because not only my intelligence background and training, which military and government trained me, but it comes down to my personal life. And this is an intentionally personal story to me, more so than I think people understand. I really was the first Republican to come out against QAnon. Um, I really was that guy. Um, and it was because of the wedding, but it was, I was also, I paid a dear price with family and friends who disowned me or, or said things that are really hard to get my arms around, right? Uh, you know, whether I'm a traitor or I betrayed our country, um, I'm deeply evil, you know, I've been taken over by Satan. You know, those type of things were said to my face. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, you know, secondhand, you know, and then people coming up and actually confronting me um, at committee meetings, Republican committee meetings, and my background being raised so religiously. Um, I saw it probably quicker than most, not just because of my training, because I lived it. And that's another thing about this book I think people will find is like, yeah, the untold story is the data, but half of this book is baseline intelligence or how human factors or human experience can give you insight that other people don't. Is the things that I'm seeing now, I lived it. I lived that in evangelical fervor. You know, I lived this being, being raised as a warrior for God. And that is why I think my insight, I do think it's more valuable than others because I think I was in a unique position just for this book where I could bring together that background you talk about, Professor Ambar, that religious stuff that I went through, uh, 
being disowned or being attacked by friends and family. At the same time, I'm getting attacked by QAnon, people wearing Q lapel pins, saying the worst things to me you can imagine and saying the worst things about the guys I married, right? That their parents were pedophiles, right? And things like, so <clears throat> it was a war. And, and that war was really this sort of ideological war between somebody like me, who all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'm looking at another cult, right? Q, so, you know, I'm looking at another cult and um, how do I fight this and how do I get people to listen? And also the fact that I found that with all my training, I was completely naive and uh, that I didn't understand how deep rooted it was. I theoretically thought I did, but I didn't, Professor Rambar. Not until you get attacked that way where you have 70 people in a committee meeting and 69 of them are absolutely hate your guts. Um, that's a tough thing to deal with. And, uh, and, and I stood and I still thought I could, I could make a difference. And as you know, um, the person who took my place is a, a COVID denier and election denier. It's that simple. I lost to fantasy and conspiracies. And if we're losing to people who think the Lord of the Rings is a documentary, uh, we're having a tough time right now in America. And you're seeing that all over this country. And it's not just a million people. It's tens of millions that have bought into a lot of this. And what do you say about the response of some who, and you mentioned a, a very important data point, Matt, maybe you could share about it, share, share a little bit about it with our audience. Uh, the call from the White House to someone who reached the Capitol, uh, you say this is a crucial clue. Can you tell us why? And why is it that some uh, who who hear these details somehow are able to, to look the other way? And, and I want to you know, draw listeners' attention to that critical clue, the call from the White House. How do people respond to that when obviously um, you've gone to great lengths to, uh, you know, to prove that this actually took place? You know, it was our technical team. And uh, it's a 100% the call happened. And, you know, for me, regardless of the length of the call, the fact that it came from the White House to a rider, not the other way around, is, is, is indicative of something much deeper. The fact is they had prior communications. Um, the other thing that you can think about too is that we also had others, as you know, in the book that really hasn't come out much, which I thought it would, like Bianca Gracia, um, but also the fact that Kelly Sorrell, the Oath Keepers, I had in there that we saw her attempting to text the White House. NBC followed up on this and found out she was texting the son of Rudy Giuliani, Andrew Giuliani, while he was a White House staffer. And again, that just sort of died. And I think there's a couple of reasons. It could be maybe the DOJ and FBI are onto it. They didn't really want to comment on it. Possible. Um, but it's also possible people don't understand that you find that one link, that one phone call, then you get their phone records. Then you get the next person's phone records. You look at their social media. You look at their data. You look at their text messages. That's how you bloom analysis. And I think it's just that it's just a limited experience with how you actually do counterterrorism analysis, how you do link analysis, um, how you look at call frequency. Um, but also how you blend that with social media and text. It's like a triangle. And the best way I can explain it, you know, to students, Professor Ambar, is that, you know, when you look at an algorithm or you look at searching, there's a triangle sort of thing that you should always think of. And by the way, it's it's really called triangle algorithm sort of theory, but made by much smarter people than me, by the way. Right. You're looking at three sides of the triangle. You're looking at social media, you're looking at cyber, and you're looking at physical location. Cyber being text, phone calls, things like that. It's the easiest way for me to put it, right? So that triangle, when you get that triangle, then you can start to merge that using math or using analytic techniques to find out what people are doing. And I think what people don't understand, first of all, there's an embarrassment that they didn't go far enough. 
and you shouldn't be embarrassed. I'm a professional. This is what I do. Um, and I tried to push that in the committee and it was very difficult. Those specific technical aspects were very difficult. They just didn't understand. Um, but I think the real thing is that why can't we learn from what we're doing? It's not a, it's not a critique. It's just, we always are learning. It's what we did in the military. We debriefed, we did hot washes. We did all those things to say, where did we screw up? And we can do a great job and still do better. And that's what I've been telling trying to tell people for Professor Ambar, we can still do a great job and do better. And I think we really need to know about those White House phone calls, who those cell numbers or desk numbers belong to, then we need to question them or we need to see who else they might have called before or after or who they texted before and after. So it's pretty much, I say it's that simple after all that. But for me, it's all about link analysis and always pulling that thread, even if it's uncomfortable. Well, I have to say, uh, Congressman Ringelman, I'm, I'm a little disheartened, but also uh, unsurprised to hear you say at the beginning of this conversation sometime a, a while ago that things have gotten worse. Um, and I, I want to ask you uh, about current threats, things that may still exist. And, and, and do you think we're safe from future insurrections or is this uh, perhaps potentially an endemic aspect of American life? Uh, where do you what do you feel about uh future elections and, and the possibility of this happening again? Well, I think January 6th was a huge success for anybody who wants to conduct any coup-like movements, right? Uh, what a learning experience for them. I also think it normalized violence, whether you're looking at what happened to Paul Pelosi, right? Looking at that on both sides of the aisle, there's been violence. But I think the Paul Pelosi thing struck a nerve uh, when you see the husband of the Speaker of the House, you know, attacked by somebody who really had bought in to some of the crazier notions and conspiracy theories. Um, I think violence will be mo more localized. I'm not trying to take credit for it and go backwards, but I, I had a question like this before, Professor Ambar, about, hey, you know, where does it go? I said, it's going to be individuals or it's going to be state or local houses now. It won't be a federal house, right? It's going to be something that's very localized, something that is, is almost, um, it's almost an asset that they can capture much easier than the Capitol building. Um, and I also said, you know, when violence happens like that, there's something else happening is that I think they're going to start working from the inside more rather than the outside, which means you see about the local election strategies, right? Taking over school boards, things like that. But they're learning their lesson quickly is that coming from the inside out. So the outside in might be more effective. Um, so I think that's what we're going to see. I think you're going to see violence when it's applicable to their own mission. Um, like you saw with Pelosi, these individuals that are easily radicalized. Um, you might see more militia movements, but I think after the GOP wins tomorrow, which I think is going to happen, I think you're going to see almost this massive uh, enthusiastic, enthusiastic embrace of the crazier elements of the GOP. Um, and at that point, I think once you roll into 2024, if it doesn't go the way that they want, I think you're going to see real violence uh, from the far right. That being said, something your students might be aware of is recipro reciprocal radicalization. So that doesn't mean that the left might not have violence in response. And that's the thing that scares me is that when you get into political violence and you get into reciprocal radicalization, you wonder how much violence each side can actually absorb and what they can do and how they plan it. So there's a lot happening um, and data is telling you that. And I'm gonna end with this you know, really quickly. Other conspiracy theories are gonna start to take over like the food shortage conspiracy theories we're seeing bloom now that the uh, new world order, the globalists are controlling food supply so that they can bring socialism to countries like the United States. That's the next one that's coming. Be prepared. Uh, that could be a big one. Wow, so much said and so much we haven't covered. And, and, and I couldn't agree more, you know, uh, nonviolence can't be something that we teach to Americans 
particularly African-Americans during Black History Month. This, this has got to be something that we all abide by and, and, and hold dear to our hearts. Yes, sir. Um, uh, listen, I, I, people have said the institutions would hold. Have they held uh, your, your discussion of Clarence Thomas uh, on the court and then Jenny Thomas and that whole uh, connection? Um, do you think he should be investigated, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, given what you we've learned and um, much of which we've learned through your book about his wife, Jenny Thomas, or is that a, a bit of a bagatelle to pursue for Democrats or others who are just concerned about that connection to one of our most important institutions? Of course, he should be investigated. The issue is optics, right? It's, it's politics. Um, if we're to investigate Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court justice, and it leads to him, which... When you see Jenny Thomas's actions, it's hard not to think that Clarence was aware, right? It's almost ridiculous uh, to think that. Um, but I think what it's just like trying to go for subpoenas or call records for for congressional members that I talk about in the book, right? In the breach, we talk about you know the, the text messages, and I thought we should go after the members who had the most egregious text messages to Meadows. That didn't really happen, or it wasn't done aggressively. Um, I think when you go after something like a Supreme Court justice's spouse and you know the connections that she has and the other stuff in the text messages that I didn't even put in the book that have people that she is friends with texting this stuff from the Council of National Policy, the CNP, if, you're, if your readers want to look up the CNP or your, your, um, your, your uh, students, if you look up the Council for National Policy, the people that Jenny was with there, how they were involved with the, you know, with the stop the steal and the legal argument for alternate electors, it should give you chills. Um, absolutely, we should have been more aggressive with Jenny and Clarence Thomas. There's no doubt about it. But the fear is when the Republicans take over that they use that aggression to go after Democratic leaders or Democratic politicians or things of that nature. So the issue is the two-party system is a disease right now. And, you know, I've told people this before that without some balancing element, when you have social media able to radicalize so many, it's going to be very difficult to do anything that's outside of the political sphere based on retribution. Um, and that scares the hell out of me. Um, and I'm one of those guys now that can stand outside and say, hey, um, that's wrong, regardless of, you know, the political ramifications of it. Because as you know, with this book and with me saying that I'm now unaffiliated, I'm not a Republican or Democrat, it would be very difficult for me to get back into politics because I just don't want to belong to a tribe. Um, I think it's uh, it is poisonous. I told somebody the other day, I said, listen, isn't it funny that the Republican Party as a whole can almost be considered going down these cult like tendencies but you see Democrats also that'll just say, I'm a Democrat no matter what. And so you have this sort of this alienation on each side where they dehumanize each other. Now, don't get me wrong. The far right is in a hold my beer moment. Right. But I guess what I'm saying is that my worry is reciprocal radicalization also. And it's, it's that violence can happen from both sides based on who thinks they're right or wrong. And uh, again, that should concern all Americans. Well, Congressman Riggleman, I, I know um, I could easily have a conversation with you for the rest of the day. I mean, there's so much to talk about. And I want to thank you again for being so kind to share the time that you have. I know you're you're in quite demand um, given all of the events that are happening and certainly we're around this midterm moment. Uh, so thank you once again. But I, I do want to have you answer one final question for, for us, if you, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, and it's a broad one, but I think you're well suited to, to answer it. And, and that is what steps do we need to take to safeguard our democracy? What are some tangible things that should happen now by, uh, by officials, elected officials, and maybe more broader for, as citizens of, of this still republic? What is it that we can do uh, to, to 
instill or to, to, to safeguard our democracy going forward? I think the hardest thing, and I, th- I want to just talk personally too, I think we need to realize that this is house to house fighting, not just in the digital space, but you know, in the argumentative space, uh, not in a violent space. Um, so the issue is, is it's only one-on-one that you're really going to convince people. You know, it's most people are screaming each other in echo chambers, whether you're talking about social media like Twitter today. I think the first thing is, the hard thing is, how do you approach somebody with a belief system that's not facts-based, uh, a facts-challenged individual? How do you approach a facts-challenged individual where it's not automatically they hate your guts, right? Or automatically it's argumentative. Argumentatively you say, hey, you're an idiot, you know? Um, how do you do that with empathy? How do you how do you change that? And that's to be sort of well-versed in the facts yourself, right, of what's happening. But I think the second thing is there's got to be organizations and groups that come out almost in a way, I think we have to we have to fight data with data. And so I talked about personal level, I think organizationally, I think there almost needs to be a private group, uh, private-public partnership, something like that, that looks at hashtag analysis, <clears throat> looks at memes, or in the memetic warfare space, and identifies the sourcing of where this data comes from and gives people the ability to access that through some kind of social media dashboard or something like that. And, I, and you know, I'm still trying to get my arms around it, uh, to be honest, but it seems like there's nowhere for people to go for truth. And I'll tell you this, really this anecdotal, you know, thing, the story very quickly, a friend of mine came into the distillery talking about one of the chapters in the book, Ray Epps. And he said, who do I believe? Because I'm sure Ray Epps is an FBI informant. I said, well, that's just not true. You know, I have his call records. We, we interviewed him twice. I mean, we, we know his movements. We know where he was. I said, it's possible he was an FBI agent, but not probable. And he said, well, Denver, I have news organizations telling me the exact opposite of what you're telling me right now. So you're saying you're the one that's right and they're not right? That doesn't make sense to me. And I started to see, God, I'm just a dude, right? <laughs> I'm just a guy. But we have Tucker Carlson with 5 million viewers or whatever telling people that Ray Epps is an FBI informant, or we have OAN, or we have Newsmax, or you have other sides saying other things, whatever. Um, how in the hell does one person like me who has this, I have an amazing background, I was on the committee, I was a congressman, counterterrorism analyst, CEO, got this amazing resume. Why would they believe me? Why, you know, why would, you, why would people read the breach and say, oh, he's right? If they're, if they're living in an ecosystem that doesn't allow them any type of flexibility in what they believe. You know, I, I, talk, you know, I just talked to you about what I think, you know, house to house fighting an organization that actually identifies where sourcing is foreign or, or domestic disinformation. But I almost think in one sense, this is gonna be really pessimistic. I think 30 to 40% of the American public, regardless of, of what side you're on, but again, more so on the far right right now is just gone. And so I think the fight really is, again, I go back full circle to that three, four, three to 5% in the middle um, that we have to convince because that three to 5% really can save us in some of these elections. So I think you identify the groups that you think you can persuade into a more facts-based world and you go at them with everything you got. But I think if we shotgun this and we try to go to as many people as possible, and I thought we could, but if we try to say, hey, you're just an idiot or hey, just got to believe this. I don't think that works. I think we got to pick very specific populations in each state and go after them specifically and try to do it in an empathetic, empathetic and facts-based way. But on the other hand, you know, after everything I've said, 
I'm going to keep continue to try, but I don't know if I've been this worried um, ever uh, from what I'm seeing the night before midterms tomorrow. And but again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. And maybe maybe the GOP has some kind of comeuppance, but I just don't think that happens tomorrow. And uh, I think the fight continues. And I think people like me and people like you, we just keep trying to, to put out the facts the best we can. And every person we encounter that is facts challenged, we try to we try to convince them using some kind of empathy or some kind of facts based argument. I I know that's not the greatest answer, but it's it's all I got. Well, I I, I appreciate your answer, and I'm, I'm drawn to and reminded of the. One of the titles of the chapters in your book, The Dark Time, and I, I guess uh, what we have to live with is that we may be in a dark time, but the length of that time ultimately may well be up to us. And that is encouraging and that maybe we have some ability to control how dark it remains and for how long. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us, and I can't thank you enough for writing this book. And I, I would not say that if I didn't uh, appreciate it and value it. Um, and 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 uh, believe the underlying premise, which is that democracy requires great attentiveness. And I want to thank you for drawing attention to what is precious about our democracy and, and just the idea of self-government and why it's under threat. Uh, it is a truly compelling read, uh, and I commend it to anyone uh, who cares about democracy. Please, please do get this book and read it. Congressman Riggleman, thank you so much for being with us today on this moment in democracy. We really appreciate it. Thank you, sir, and have a great day. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This moment in democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. To learn more about the Institute, visit eagleton.rutgers.edu and follow Eagleton on social media.